Good morning. I'm going to be reading from John 17, 20 through 26. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Thank you, Jean. Church, if you want to follow along with us this morning, we're going to be in the passage that she just read, John 17, 20 through 26. Um, for those who may be just joining us, we are working our way through the Gospel of John. Um, we are now uh, almost all the way through what has been called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It comes on the tail end of what's called his farewell discourse as Jesus prepares his people for his departure and right before his move to the cross. And this, this prayer has really three sections. First, what we have is we have a prayer for Jesus for himself, that he would bring glory to the Father, that he would be glorified by the Father. Then we have a prayer for his disciples, those that he's going to be leaving behind. But this morning, the reason why this particular text is significant and relevant for you is because Jesus in this text is praying for you, for all those who will believe based on the testimony of the apostles. And what we see here is that Jesus illuminates his innermost desires for his people that will follow in the footsteps of their faith. So if you would pray with me and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word that washes over us, your truth that sanctifies us. And Lord, we just ask that this morning you would communicate through your word to your people for their good and your glory. And we do pray very specifically this morning that your desire, that your people would be perfectly one, that you would even use this message in the power of your spirit to help accomplish that great end in our little corner of the kingdom. And we ask for all of this in the name of Jesus, for his glory and our good. Amen. <clears throat> on August 28th of 1963, on the foot, at the foot of the uh, Lincoln Memorial, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stepped up to the podium and delivered one of the most memorable and influential and famous speeches of the last century. It was his famous, I Have a Dream speech. 
Now, for those who've actually never heard it, um, what made this particular speech so memorable, so influential, was not simply just because it was accurately identifying some injustices and inequalities in the current segregation system. It was not just because Martin Luther King was an amazing orator and he had the ability to be able to clearly communicate and powerfully communicate. What specifically made this dream, this speech, so memorable was the powerful and compelling vision of the future that he put into words. In his words, he dreamed of a world where one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down at the table of brotherhood. He said, I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, it will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. And famously, he said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their sin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. Now, I just think this is so powerful because when Martin Luther King stated these words, he stated them not because his dream was as of at that moment a reality, but it was a compelling image of what could be something that stirred and created a longing in all those listening by just its pure beauty. And it was a vision that really focused the efforts and gave purpose and direction to his people's ongoing struggle. And in a similar way, in the prayer that we just read, what Jesus does is he gives us and shares with us his compelling vision for his people. He gives us his beautiful longing, his dream for his church, that one day he and all of his church would be perfectly one. Now, I want to be real with you, and I want to be honest I know that this is not our current reality. We honestly have trouble living in harmony with even a small band of believers, much less picturing the the beauty of a, a perfectly one people, of all of God's people. We can find that even a little naive, maybe even a little like wishful thinking, but I think the thing I want to draw your attention to this morning that would not allow you to cast this off as just wishful thinking or just some idealistic dream is because unlike Martin Luther King's dream, Jesus's dream is not rooted in mere ideals and human effort, but it is rooted in the promise and the power of God. And so it isn't idealistic dreaming. It is our destiny as God's people. And so if we're going to pursue the same dream, then we must take these two prayers of Jesus, both our, make these two prayers of Jesus, both our regular prayer and our daily pursuit. So let me make this again clear. This is what is on Jesus' heart for his people that he is leaving behind as he's looking towards the future. This is what he desires for them. And so if your heart, if your life is going to be animated and moved by the same desires, then this is what you need to be pursuing. This is what you need to be praying for.
First, that we would be unified through our union with Christ. That we, the church, I want to be explicit, the church would be unified by our, or through our union with Christ. All right, so in verse 20, Jesus identifies specifically who he is praying for. He says this, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their Word. Now, who are the these only he's referring to? Remember from last week, he was praying last week for these only, meaning it was the people that were in the room that he was leaving behind. And now he's saying, I'm not just praying for them, these apostles that I'm going to depart from. I'm actually going to be praying for those who will believe based on their testimony. So what he's assuming, because he's been praying for them, that their testimony is going to continue. And what he's doing here is he's promising that there will be generation upon generation upon generation of believers in Jesus through their faithful testimony. And I want to pause here just for a minute because it helps us understand who he's praying for. He's not necessarily praying for just a utopia in the world at all together. They would all be one. Why? Because they don't do it in Christ. And we'll get to exactly how this happens in just a moment. He's praying that his people would be unified. But second thing I want you to do is we tend to have the, uh, lost the ability to recognize that we are one small link in a much larger chain. And so what this verse helps us realize is that for 2,000 years, each succeeding generation of Christians has passed the torch from one to the next that there may be Christian witness today and that it is for that entire group that Jesus desires that they would be one. So the first thing that Jesus prays for is that his people would be unified. Now, I'm going to be bouncing around from in verses 21, 22, and 23, 24, quite a bit, because Jesus basically prays for the same prayer with minor variations twice. And so I'm going to be hitting it. And so just follow along. A lot of it will be up there. But if you get confused, it's only somewhere in those few verses. Okay, so just follow along with me. The first thing he prays that they would be unified, picking up in the second half of 21, we read this, that they, or the first half of 21, that they may all be one. So he's praying for all those that have heard, but we'll hear the word through the testimony of the apostles and the ones who will hear it every generation after that. He's praying for all of them that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. He prays that they may all be one. In other words, Jesus is praying that all of these people would together be a unit, that they would be unified, that they would have unity, that they would together be united in heart, in mind, and in purpose. And I think this is one of those things that we say, and even our culture recognizes this is a good thing. So it's going to take a moment to kind of flesh this out. Why is this important? Why does this matter? What does this mean? He is not talking about a superficial, y'all just get along. He is talking about something more deep, something more real, something more powerful, a people that with one voice are moving in one direction together. And in order for that to happen, what it must mean is that our individual selfish desires for our wants, our glory, our good would die and dissolve as we sacrifice and seek the good of one another. See, here's the reality. 
When you read the New Testament epistles, so many times, and we're going to see in just a moment, so much of what the apostle is saying is to love one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens. Is it simply because he wants people to just get along because he's tired of dealing with squabbles? No. There is a theological reason for that. Specifically, he wants us to, to do that so that we are able to accurately point to the glory of God. And he does not want us to become the same people, to lose our distinctiveness. Like some Eastern religions teach that really the way to have unity is to lose yourself altogether and to kind of be absorbed up into a common third substance. He's saying, no, I want you to maintain your distinct, distinct individuality, but that you would be able to live in perfect harmony with one another. I think a great picture of this is if you've ever seen a symphony each individual instrument is doing something different, but when they play, they are all harmonizing together, playing the same instruments, working for the same purpose, even though each is contributing something differently. And so the church is intended to be this massive symphony for the glory of God as each, part, each person plays the part that he was meant to play. Unfortunately, we recognize that in today's world, this is such a rare thing that Jesus must use the perfect unity he enjoys with the Father as the only worthy analogy. So he, Jesus, by giving us this analogy, is saying that everything that you see on this earth is going to have some, some flaws with it. Like you, you can't even almost imagine the level of perfect unity I'm talking about. So I'm pointing you to the unity that I have with my Father. Because in that triune God, we see that the unity does not remove their distinct identities. The Father is praying to the Son. The Father sends the Son. The Father sends the Son. The Son prays to the Father. Both the Father, the Son, and Spirit are individual, unique persons, and yet, there is, and yet they are one. They completely and are totally aligned in their purposes, desires, and actions. And one of the things you see throughout John is that all Jesus seeks to do is to submit himself to the Father for his glory. And throughout the story of John, all the Son is seeking to do is to bring a people to Jesus that they may worship him and glorify him forever. And then we've even heard that the Spirit, he comes so that he may glorify Christ you see that in the Trinitarian nature of God, there is this perfect picture of the unity that Jesus is calling his people to walk in. The Father glorifies the Son. The Son, the Spirit glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. And we see that this actually gets poured out on us, this overflowing, outgiving glory in verse 22, where we read that the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. In other words, the reason that we are unified or to be unified is because that we have received a particular glory and the commentators, commentators are all over the place on what that means. And at this point, I don't want to dive into that because the point is that what the glory does, the glory unifies us with the Father and the Son, right? The Father gives glory to the Son, and the Son gives unique glory to us, and so we are included in their unity. And so the reason 
we are to be unified is because we have been brought into fellowship with a God who is unified. Let me say this again. The reason it is important that you and I as a church and the reason that the church as a whole is to be unified is not simply because we got to get along because it's better that way, but because we have been brought into relationship with a unified God. And we see this everywhere in the New Testament. I'm going to give you one example. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, in verse, in verse 3, John, uh, Paul has been writing to tell them how they are to pursue unity, and he says they are to do this in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So he's saying you should be humble, you should treat one another well, you're to do this, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he explains why they are to do that in verses 4 through 6, where he says there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. In other words, Jesus' desire for our unity is because it is by our unity that we reflect the unity of, or we reflect the glory of a unified God and we live in harmony with a unified God. Unity is not a minor issue for God's people. It is an essential issue for God's people. Because we worship a triunely unified God. Okay, so that's up here. What's that look like for y'all practically? How do we move from, that's a great idea, pastor, to how do we live that out practically with these group of misfits? I'm just kidding. <laughs> y'all be great. How do we do this practically? First thing we just got to recognize, this is going to be hard. And this is why it's going to be hard. Because you and I are sinners. And what that does is that sin warps our us so that we care more about us than we do about anybody else. At the heart of sin is self. And so in order for us to not be about self, but to be about the glory of God and the good of others, you know what's got to happen? Self got to die. Notice how Paul begins, and this is from Ephesians 4, what I was just mentioning, verses 2 and 3. He says that we are to live a life worthy of the calling we have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Philippians 2, he'll describe it this way. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. In other words, it is impossible to pursue unity when you allow your selfish pride to reign supreme. That must die the death of the cross for unity be realized and achieved. And I think one thing he's making the point is that there is a spiritual reality that we are unified. And yet at the same time, we can live in a way that is completely contradictory to that by the words that we speak, the lives that we live, and what we hold on to in our hearts. Humility is at the heart of Unity. 
quickness to forgive, a quickness to hear. Someone who bears wrong selflessly, assumes the best, and pursues reconciliation where there's been a wrong done, pursues those that they feel like have wronged them if they cannot forgive and move past. It does not isolate. It does not operate with a critical spirit. It isn't constantly frustrated with others, selfishly refusing to serve others, demanding that my preferences be heard and met, or I'm not gonna serve, I'm not gonna love, I'm not gonna give. All that is is a selfish desire that the enemy uses to destroy unity in God's people because we let it run rampant. Now, if you're like me, because I've been in pastor for eight years, I know that we don't have it within us <laughs> to do this. And so you may be asking the question, how do we get there? And I think the second part of Jesus' prayer here is absolutely essential to understand because the next thing he prays for is that we may be united with Christ. Not simply that we would be unified, but that we would be unified through being united with Christ. So picking up in the second half of 21, we see this phrase where Jesus prays that they all may be in us. And then down to 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one. In other words, what Jesus is talking about here is the spiritual reality we know is union with Christ. So how do we walk in unity with people we have nothing in common with? We got Yankees in here. We got deeply Southern people in here. We've got people from all over different countries. We, we've got people from all over the place in here. How are these people who are sinners and selfish and different, how are they to love one another? Through abiding in Christ. He says that you are in me, which is what he is saying here is that you need to be grafted into drawing your strength from the vine. It's the same imagery he's used in John 15. He says, you are in us, that they would be in us, meaning that they would be attached to the vine the same way branches are attached to the vine, which means that they are connected vitally. And that part of that is not simply that we would be in him, but that he would be in us because when you've got branches and they are attached to the vine, you know what's flowing through those branches? The sap of the vine, right? The power of the vine. So the fruit that is bare, born is the fruit that comes from the vine. So he said the only way these people are going to be able to be unified is because the power of God has got to dwell in them so that they take on the very characteristics of the vine, that they would be in Christ. In other words, not only are we to be in God, but he is to be in us. And just as the sap of the vine runs through the branches bearing fruit in it, so it is Christ dwelling in us that enables our unity with other branches. Harmony with other believers comes through union with Christ. There is no other way. We're too different. I love how A.W. Tozer put it. He says this. It's a beautiful quote. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. 
Isn't that beautiful? Lord, tune us to Christ. Let us be in him. Let him flow in us so that we bear the fruit of the unity that he enjoys with the Father. That's what we want. Jesus is the source of our union with other believers. It is by and in and through Jesus. So we must reject shallow expressions of this. This idea that assume that this unity comes from discarding truth and conviction. If you've ever heard this phrase, doctrine divides, love unites. That is superficial nonsense. Our unity is around the truth of who Jesus is. The truth of who he is, what he has said, what he did is the locus of our unity because he's also the, but he's also the power of our unity. Just as the vine must support the branches, so Jesus empowers this unity, which means we can't pursue unity with other believers without first pursuing and abiding in Christ first. In fact, I think that may be a great self-diagnostic question for you to ask today. How's your unity? with other believers? How is your harmony with other Christ followers? Would you characterize yourselves as annoyed, put out, disgruntled, frustration with other believers? Or maybe you wouldn't categorize yourself like that, but maybe would others, when they prick you and touch you and begin to kind of start the ball rolling, what comes out of you? Is it critical? Is it frustrated? Is it angry? Let me maybe just suggest to you that your primary issue is not with them, but that you are not abiding in the vine. Because when you are united with Christ and one another, oh, people are going to notice. So picking back up in the last half of verses 21 and 23, we read what is intended by this kind of unity. In verse 21, we read, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Then in verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So again, what I'm doing is I'm grabbing the tail end of these two verses, these two prayers that God, Jesus prays, and I'm helping you see the commonality. Both of them are for the purpose of making the love and the glory of Jesus known to the world. I like the way one commentator puts it. He says, this display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly that their witness as to who Jesus is becomes explainable only if Jesus truly is the revealer whom the Father has sent. It is a heavenly unity because it smells and tastes like heaven because there ain't no other way to be able to explain it. The love they display, the unity that God's people are to walk in is what empowers the witness and the testimony. This is what Jesus means when he says, they will know you by your love. And here is the missional platform of God's people, a noteworthy unity and love. So if you've been asking this question, what about those around the world? Doesn't Jesus care like that the glory? And he said, yes, but you want to know how to make the glory of Christ and want to give a compelling vision for the people out there so that they believe what you have to say? Be unified around not anything else like your hobbies or your age of life, your stage of life, or anything, but because you are in Jesus. That's it. What brings glory to Jesus is people living in Christ-empowered unity. 
This is so much more than just getting along. This is a giving, a serving, a bearing, a sharing, a loving, a pursuing of people whom you have nothing in common with except Jesus. And when this happens, people will take notice. I want to give you one specific glimpse of this. So over the last few days, as you mentioned, Jim and Lynette Cal have headed out, put out the word. Y'all showed up. So I was having a conversation with Lynette on Friday, and she was telling me that her unbelieving neighbor came in and saw the mass of people that were around packing and fixing and loading and doing all these things. And they were like, where'd all these people come from? (laughs) Where'd they come from? And she just said, they're from our church. They showed up. And she, Lynette was telling me, she was just saying, they didn't have a category for it. Like, they didn't know all these people that well. They showed up because of Jesus. And guys, when we catch that, when we begin to get a hold of that, it will make our evangelistic efforts that much more potent because the, the way has already been prepared because they've seen the love of Christ bear out. They've seen it. And I just say that I got a glimpse of that a couple days ago, and it was heavenly. And it just made me rejoice because only the power of God can do that. And as beautiful and wonderful as all that is, though, interestingly enough, it's still not the climax of what Jesus prays for. For those of you who are counting, there are two points to this sermon. We are now moving into the second point. It is shorter than the first point, so just so you are aware. Next, Jesus prays that we would fully know God and that we would be filled with his love. That we would fully know God and that we would be filled with his love. So the first part of Jesus' prayer for the church that we just talked about, primary focus or location, you could say, is on earth. How the believers' lives would be characterized on earth. But now, as we move into verse 24, Jesus looks beyond the earth And you could say he looks to the eternal horizon that he desires for his people, and he prays this. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So much I love about this prayer. One, the intimacy, the beauty, but it just recognizes that we constantly live in this place of tension. Y'all, for For thousands of years, God has been revealing his glory and pursuing his people. And yet, to this point, we still see so little of his glory. That there is still something we have not yet fully experienced and understood about who he is. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul says it this way. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And I think what you need to understand is that this is the heart of Jesus' prayer here. That his people would not just remain distant, would not kind of know him, but that they would know him and see his glory with fully clear eyes and that he, they would be fully known. He wants them to know, he wants them to know him fully and see him clearly. 
But now Jesus expresses his desire that we would know him fully, that he would see my glory, that we would see my glory that you have given me before the foundation of the world. In other words, he wants to bring his people into the intimacy of the divine relationship between the Father and the Son that preexisted all of human history. And this is the final point in consummation of all human history. If you read the New Testament carefully, you'll hear this phrase coming again over and over again, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. You know that book of Revelations with an S at the end? We typically use the word S. It's not the word S. It's actually the opening verse tells you it's the story. The whole book is about one thing, the revelation of Jesus that the world would finally see him for who he is, that his people would finally worship him for who he is, that they would finally come to know this Jesus that saved him in all his glory. That is the direction of human history. That is what you and I as his people are waiting for. As Ephesians 2 says, says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, the end for which we are all moving is an end and a waiting and a tension we live in now where we don't see Jesus clearly, but one day we're going to know him fully because we'll be with him where he is and the glasses will come off, the dimness will disappear and we will see him for his glory with 100% clarity. And I don't care what kind of earthly relationships you have on this earth or what God, what has happened to you on this earth or what you don't have, that is what you were made for. Jesus desires that we would be with him where he is and see him for who he is. And I just want to stop and think about this for a moment because that's a real bible term. The God who made the world, who spoke it into being, who sustains it now by the word of his power, the son himself, he wants you to know the glory that he had before the foundation of the world. He wants to bring you into that wants you to come behind the curtain to get to hang out with him backstage but not for a moment but that you would enjoy him forever but until then his focus shifts back to the to the world we currently live in in verse 25 and he says oh righteous father even though the world does not know you i know you And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Jesus returns again here to the perfect knowledge he has of the Father, the personal knowing of God, and and contrasts the world that does not know you with his ongoing ministry of revealing the goodness and the glory of the Father to them. And that ministry contends and continues not just as long as he lived, but continues to this day. The Son reveals the love and the glory of the Father to his people, and it is through that ongoing revelation of the knowledge of God to the people of God as they they eat it and they drink it and they come to see God's glory with greater and greater and greater and greater and greater clarity that this happens. And this is the final phrase, and this is where we're going to finish up in just a minute. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let me say that again that the love that you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is something new. He hasn't said this before, and this is an amazing statement. He is saying that through a continual knowledge of God, that the love the Father has for the Son 
will get transferred to them so that the Father's love will get poured out to the Son and will get poured out into the people so that it will be in them. D.A. Carson says the crucial point is, uh, that is that this text does not simply make these followers the objects of God's love, but promises that they will be so transformed as God has continually made known to them that God's own love for his son will become their love. The love with which they learn to love is nothing less than the love amongst the persons of the Godhead. Let me say that last part again. The love with which they learn to love is nothing less than the love amongst the persons of the Godhead. Which is why so frequently in the New Testament, the fruit of genuinely knowing God, really, truly, fully knowing him, is always focused on growing love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. That phrase has been misused and mishandled a thousand times, but I just don't want you to miss the shattering reality that the love with which we have, any genuine love, does not come from us. It comes from Him. Channels through the Son comes to us through Him. And so the way that we love is not based on our strength, our goodness, our love, but based on the way we have been loved. So what are we to do with this? I think the first thing I want to mention is this. And I'm going to maybe speak more to me than to you, but it's probably a good idea for me to start here. People that love God's truth, people that are about doctrine, which I would consider myself in this category, need to understand that the point of all that truth is that we would see the glory of God so that we may love like him. Jonathan Edwards calls love the fount of all other virtues. And so we need to give love its proper place. It is the first of the fruits of the Spirit for a reason, because it is love that all the others flow out of. And ultimately, I think we can say it is the test of our salvation. It is something that we owe to everyone based on God's love for us. In other words, what I'm saying is this. If you are in here and you have been loved with this kind of love, you owe owe it to every person in this room to give them your love. They don't have to earn it. They don't have to deserve it. You owe it to them because of what he's done for you. Secondly, we need to rightly define love. Even when I use that word love, I, I cringe a little bit because I know some of you are going to hear and then you're going to fill in that love. What does that mean with your own definitions, the world's definitions? I just want to make something clear. Love is not license. Love is not affirmation. Love is Christ. Love is the cross. Love is the desire for the eternal good of others. That, by, that they be near and with and loved by Christ. 1 Corinthians 13 helps us see that it demands that we be patient and kind. But love will also cut. Love will also confront. Love will also convict if the object of love is moving away from Jesus and not toward him. And then first, finally, we just need to understand the right source of love. 
Because the love with which Jesus is calling you to love one another is not, he's not calling to well it up within you. Like, just be more loving. He is calling you to be more loving. But recognizing that if you're going to have genuine love for others, Christ-centered love, it must come from him. As all love comes from him. And so he is calling you to draw deeply from this well. He is calling you to abide in the love of Christ so that you will be able to love others. If you try to love others in your strength, you're going to fail. I'll tell you right now. But if you try to love others, understanding here's the standard and how far you fall, and you say, because I see the difference between his standard and me, I'm going to start abiding more in the love of Christ that I might love and worship and pour out to him, I promise you, you will know more of the love of God in your life. And the people around you will know more of the love of God in their life. 1 John 4, 9 through 11 says, And this is the love of God. And this love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The fruit of your loving others confirms whether or not you are genuinely in the Father's love. And you may be in here, and this sounds completely crazy and completely ridiculous, and if that's you, it's probably because you do not yet know the Father's love. That the Father must be received through the love of the Son and the sacrifice that he has made. And if you do not yet know that God, and you are still in your sins, confirmed and content in your selfishness, let me just say that the way that you walk in the love of the Father is by repenting and believing in the Son. And I would just call anyone here who has not yet repented and believed in Christ, would you call out to him today that you may know the love of the Father? And if you want to know what that looks like, ask someone nearby. Grab someone and ask them, what does it mean to know the love of God? Because Martin Luther King never lived to see the culmination and the fulfillment of his dream. And I am confident that we will not in this life see this perfectly play out for us. And yet we have been given a vision, a dream by our Savior for what he hopes and longs for and desires for us that every generation is meant to pray for, long for, fight for, and strive for. And my prayer is that Jesus' dream would so move and motivate our lives and our communities that it would be something that we long for, something that we struggle for, something that we tirelessly sacrifice for, and that we would make it our effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit for the bond of peace so that the glory of God may be known in the world. Would you pray that with me? Father, we have received a love that we cannot comprehend in Christ. Help us to abide in his love. Lord, teach us and help us to know, love, walk, honor, desire this, Lord, knowing that it will require our death daily. And yet we know that even in our death, Lord, that you give life and strength, and it is that through that death that we will understand, Father, more fully your love for us. 
Lord, if there are any in the room who do not know you yet, Lord, I pray that they would not leave here, but Father, that you would begin to convict their hearts, Father. Draw them to yourself. And Lord, that they would seek to know the love of Christ. And they would ask somebody before they leave today. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.